And on the day called Sunday, there is a meeting in one place of those who live in cities or the country, and the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read as long as time permits. When the reader has finished, the president in a discourse urges and invites us to the imitation of these noble things. Hello, my name is Ryan Hamill, and I am one of the hosts of New Humanists, the podcast of the Ancient Language Institute. As always, I'm here with Jonathan Roberts, my co-host and co-founder of the Ancient Language Institute. We are on a quest to discover what a renewed humanism looks like for the modern world. We also have, as you heard, a special guest, a returning guest, back by popular demand. The people have spoken. Calvin Gallagher is back. He's the Latin and Greek fellow at the Ancient Language Institute. He's our anchor man for the patristics. So we're this week going to talk about Justin Martyr, early church father, Greek father. And when we talk church fathers, we talk to Calvin. So thanks for, thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. If you haven't heard previous episode, we talked about On the Incarnation by Athanasius. So go check that one out uh, if you haven't listened to it. Really great, really great stuff. So before we dive into um, Justin Martyr and the first apology, which is his most famous work and what we'll be talking about today, just wanted to talk about why we chose this. The first apology is really caught my attention and interest because of the way that Justin deals with Christian theology, philosophy, Greek philosophy, and pagan mythology, pagan poetry. And so he's trying to affect some sort of synthesis, which is a lot of what we discuss here is thinking about the kind of humanistic tradition. the pre-Christian or non-Christian literature and philosophy and how it connects to religious thought and whether these things can be reconciled in part at all. And if you're going to have that conversation, you have to talk about Justin Martyr because he's one of the first people to really try and think it over in a systematic way. So Calvin, would you tell us a little bit about Justin and kind of his work, what we know him for and the first apology and why it matters? Mm -hmm. Yep. Uh, in the spirit of not burying the lead, one reason to be very interested in Justin Martyr is he seems to be one of the first beach evangelism converts in <laughs> history. So that's one uh, interesting and important fact. Uh, Justin was a philosopher who actually, like Augustine a few centuries later, went through a series of sort of philosophical schools and options, trying out different things on for size. And uh, his second to last uh, philosophical tradition was the tradition of Platonism. And he describes the experience of converting to Platonism as uh, being overpowered by the perception of immaterial things, his mind being furnished with wings by the contemplation of the forms. Uh, being furnished with wings is a, 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 you know, a platonic slogan. Uh, Gregory of Nazianzus actually describes that as the purpose of pastoral ministry is to give the soul wings. So this was something that would live on later in the church. But that was that was not going to be Justin's last conversion because there were certain things about Platonism that he found incomplete and inadequate. And he ended up meeting a guy on the beach who explained to him that before the philosophers 
there were certain men even more ancient who were both righteous and beloved by God. He gives this uh, statement in the dialogue with Trifo, which is one of his other works. And he says that those people foretold events which would take place. They are called prophets. And he, he considered himself to be converted to Christianity by meeting the prophets as a superior, um, superior form of what he found in a, in a way in Platonism. He found even more of the same and better and different in important ways in the prophets. One thing he's known for is that when he converted to Christianity, he held on to his philosopher's cloak because he, he considered Christianity the true philosophy. His name gives away the fact that he died a violent death as a martyr and uh, was remembered uh, as one of, the, one of the key figures in the very early first or second generation of the church after the death of the apostles. That, uh, the anecdote about him keeping his philosopher's cloak makes me think of the Jesuit mission to China. Right. Um, like Matteo Ricci and his buddies when they went there, they first, they, I think they wore like mendicant garb to be like, you know, we're, we're poor monks bringing, bringing the gospel. And so nobody listened to them because they're like, you're, you're a bunch of poor monks. Why would we care what you have to say? So then they, after a bit of trial and error, put on like the, the garb of Confucian scholars, Confucian philosophers. And that's when they really started making inroads into Imperial China and got invited to the core and started sharing Western science, which was really interesting. Right. So he, he set a historical precedent. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. I think it could be, it, it could be a kind of a double-edged sword, so to speak. I think it, one way to think of it is a contextualization strategy. Here I am ministering to the, the Greeks. Right. The other way to think about it is a bit of a declaration of war. Like, I'm not going to just say i'm i believe this religious stuff but i'm leaving philosophy to you he's actually saying no christ is the philosophy that that is uh to be espoused by all true rational minds right and uh sort of claiming that space or territory intellectually and socially right right no that's great and so some of what you said works into the first apology mm -hmm. like the preeminence at least in time of the prophets which is what converted him, gets worked into his arguments in the first apology. And so yeah. that's what we're going to be talking about. What, what is the first apology, just generally speaking? Yeah. What is he apologizing for? What did what, he do? What is he sorry for? What did he do? We want to know. Yeah, I think, you know, this could be a genre of like marriage advice, like the first apology <laughs> and, and all of them thereafter. Right? Um, yeah. So the, the word apology, of course, apologia in Greek, uh, refers to giving, a, giving an answer or an account of oneself. And it has a sense of doing so in a hostile context of some kind, um, giving a, a sort of outward-facing explanation. And that's really what this is, is an outward-facing explanation of Christianity in front of an audience who either won't understand or is, and, and this is, both of these are going to be true, is predisposed to dislike or potentially really hate Christians. And when you're addressing things in that way, you tend to speak in a certain way, you tend to use certain kinds of arguments that are gonna be plausible or clear. You tend to be aiming at certain goals that are different from when you're looking inward at your own people and instructing them and edifying them. And so 
why does Justin need to defend Christianity and the Christians? Well, it was a persecuted faith. The story often is, is that it was universally persecuted with a kind of unremitting and you know, ferocious violence, no matter where it went, until hundreds of years later, Constantine converted. That story is far too, you know, just, it's just not, not quite true that it was unremittingly and constantly hounded until Constantine converted. But there were a series of bursts of persecution in different places, and there was always the potential for such a burst to break out. And the kind of argument you could make would be the kind of argument that a Roman leader would find convincing. And Justin provides several, you know, uh, Christians are contributing to society. That's one. Another would be that Christians are not doing anything illegal, you know, and you need to actually investigate what we're doing before you just kind of, you know, assume that because we're Christians, we're, we're uh, violating Roman law. So he, he sort of gets into procedural norms and legal norms that would be common ground between him and, and his audience, Marcus Aurelius, the emperor. Right. Yeah. So we have this letter from Pliny the Younger writing to the Emperor Trajan, and this is a few decades before the first apology. And it's very famous. Pliny's asking, so there's these Christians. I don't really know who they are, what they're up to. What do you think, Emperor Trajan? And Pliny describes his procedure with them. He says, I don't go hunting for them, but, and so this is to your point, Calvin, that in before Constantine, you don't have just kind of unremitting totalitarian persecution of Christians is kind of, it can be sporadic and irregular. And so Pliny says, so when someone's denounced as a Christian, I interrogate them. Those who confess, I interrogate a second and third time, threatening them with punishment. Those who persisted, I ordered executed. For I had no doubt that whatever the nature of their creed, stubbornness and inflexible obstinacy surely deserve to be punished. There were others possessed of the same folly, but because they were Roman citizens, I signed an order for them to be transferred to Rome. So maybe audience will think of the Apostle Paul, who's kind of freaks out the local authorities when he says, I've been a Roman citizen since birth. And so they, he makes his way to Rome. Yeah. Paul's speeches and acts are a good example of the earliest type of apologies that we have. Some of his speeches are just missionary speeches. Yeah. Some of them are towards the people of Israel, giving a kind of apology for Christianity. And then some of them are towards figures in the Roman government. Right. And in different ways, they each have this outward facing aspect to it, which gives some of the outlines of what the apologists will be doing generations later. Right. And so Trajan responds to Pliny. He says, you're right, they're not to be sought out. But if they are denounced and proved guilty, they are to be punished. With this reservation that whoever denies that he is a Christian and really proves it, that is by worshiping our gods, even though he was under suspicion in the past, shall obtain pardon through repentance. So basically, we're not going to spend imperial time or imperial money searching for Christians. If they get denounced, yeah, they're guilty of being Christians. And if they don't apostatize, we kill them. Yeah. And this is in large part what Justin wants to convince the Roman government to stop doing is you can't just hear that they're Christians. And even if they confess that they're Christians, you can't just kill them on that account. That's not, that's not a capital crime. They need to be guilty of doing something, not just of saying I'm a Christian, because what's wrong with that? Yeah. Uh, and that's, 
much of the burden of the apology. And we actually get also, I'd be curious to hear your guys' thoughts, um, but we get at the end of the manuscript that came down to us that has the first apology, we get this rescript. So similar to the correspondence between Pliny and Trajan, we have a letter from Hadrian, who was the emperor after Trajan, and who was the emperor before Antoninus Pius, who's addressed in the first apologies. Hadrian basically says the same thing, but it's, you know, does this advance the position of the Christians? It's kind of debatable, but Justin includes it to say, look, you shouldn't arrest and punish Christians unless they've committed some crime. The editors of the edition I was looking at, so I was the critical edition from Oxford University Press, Dennis Mins and Paul Parvis, they think they're this rescript from Hadrian is genuine, um, that it's real, but they think that Justin is putting it to kind of too much use. It has this one line that says, if they're not committing some crime, and Justin thinks this proves his case that, oh yeah, Hadrian, he didn't kill Christians unless they'd committed a real crime. But the, my editors, they say, ah, oh, the crime is being a Christian. <laughs> <laughs> so in the apology, it seems like there's two motivating concerns. One is kind of the legal concern that we've discussed or the kind of challenge to Roman authorities to follow their own you know, legal procedures and such. Hmm. But then there's also the uh, concern about the content of Christianity. Like, is Christianity rational? Right. Yeah. And... Calvin, could you flesh out for us, like, what's the what's the background? Why would Justin have to defend the rationality of Christianity in this context? Yeah. Well, I guess the the reason it's necessary. I mean, consider somebody who's advocating for a religion today and says, "I want nothing to do with questions about what this religious claim I'm making has to do with scientific evidence." You know, they just want nothing to do with that conversation at all in principle. It's not just that they don't enjoy the conversation. They just think it's an invalid thing. Someone who says such a thing is just giving up any kind of, they don't really care to make their claims, to press their claims in that, in that area. That's the best analogy I can think of for what it would be to start a religion or to advocate for a religion in the second century. And just say, well, it has nothing to do with philosophy. It, it's not like today where we kind of think that, well, you can be philosophical or not. You have that choice. In that context, it's like, well, do you care about truth and reality? Or are you just going to start some private little sect that doesn't really address the real world? So for him, he's saying, you know, I'm wearing this philosopher's cloak, not just to say that I'm smart, but to say that my aspiration is the aspiration that Socrates cherished and all of his heirs of really getting to the truth. And I commend my religion to you as the truth, not just because I like it and it's mine and I want it to be yours and I'm looking for new recruits. Well, the analogy with modern science is really good, actually, because of who the apology is addressed to. Because I could kind of imagine someone doing some sort of mystical, starting a mystical religion in the 21st century, and actually it being very popular. Mm -hmm even if they say, this has nothing to do with science, science has nothing to teach us, they could actually get some followers if they're sufficiently charismatic and whatnot. But who they could never convince are elites. Anybody with a lot of money, a lot of social status, or a lot of education, it would be not a question. And 
who is Justin trying to convince? The emperor of Rome and his two sons, one of whom is Marcus Aurelius, who would go on to become the next emperor. And the way that Justin addresses Marcus Aurelius in particular, because this is addressed to the three of them, is Verissimus, which is this nickname of Marcus Aurelius, which is a play on words because his full name before being adopted by Emperor Antoninus Pius was Marcus Anius Verus, Verus meaning true, fitting. And so he got he was called Verissimus, the most true, um, the truest, the truest one. And so, and he's famously the one who gave us the meditations, this great work we've talked about on the podcast before of Stoic philosophy. So Justin's trying to convince philosopher kings to stop killing Christians. And I think it's not at all concealed. He's trying to convert them. Yeah. And the best, the best way to get the emperor to stop killing Christians is to make the emperor a Christian. So, you know, if, if I can't convert you guys, at least stop killing us for no reason, but be really great if you saw that this was the truth. That's right. And the key thing is he's not, there, there were many new religions at that time. It was not a irreligious period. Um, there's a swirl and ferment of religion going all over the place. And, uh, you know, actually, Christians may have looked quite irreligious by comparison to, to many since they actually worshipped, you know, quite a lot. You know, today it's like, oh, you worship one God and I worship zero. And that's the kind of atheist apologetic uh, situation that a lot of Christians engage in, trying to convince people <laughs> who worship zero gods to worship one. Well, in their day, they're trying, to, right. they're trying to convince people who worship an unlimited number of gods <laughs> depending on the context of their life and what they're after to actually gather up all those allegiances into one uh, allegiance to, to one God. And Justin draws a kind of analogy to Socrates in this way that Socrates was kind of trying to get underneath the, the myths and the sort of popular opinions about religion and Hey, they killed him. And uh, it seems to me he's drawing a comparison as I believe many do in the history of Christian thought to the life of Jesus, who is trying to show, you know, the deeper reality behind things. And that wasn't popular. Yeah. In, in a similar way. Yeah. And that, that, um, that helps us to start getting into the mind of, uh, you know, of a, of a Roman during, during this time who has certain concerns, right. About Christianity and that this would be one of them, right. It's like, Oh, they only worship one God. That's crazy. There's, there's gotta be more than one. I mean, <laughs> Look at the Pantheon, you know? This would be like the equivalent of having a Fortune 500 company with one employee, the CEO. <laughs> you know, it's just, it, it's an offensive idea. Like, how could you be a, a you know, world, you know, multinational company and the only person you have, he's the janitor, he's the supply chain guy, he's accounting, he's sales. You know, they'd be like, hey, it just doesn't, it's, you, know, you know, it doesn't work like that. You have to have many, many branches of a large organization like, you know, the heavens in order to run life on earth here. So what are, what are some of the other concerns that a Roman would have? Well, I think the, the idea that there was sort of a secret, a secret society forming and that Christians were a kind of fifth column. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of interesting guesses about what Christians were really up to in their worship. I think that's why right at the end of the apology, there's a, there's a very famous and quite lovely description of what Christian worship is like. And if you've ever been to church, you'll recognize it. I mean, on the day called Sunday, we gather, there's bread, there's wine, there's water. There's a guy at the front. He reads from the memoirs of the the apostles, which is, it seems, Justin's term for the gospels. 
and uh, from the prophets. And then he, he seems to preach and then there's an offering, you know, and he's saying, well, look, that's, that's, you know, that's not so dangerous. And there are parts of the, the worship that outsiders are excluded from in this period. It wouldn't have been possible for someone not baptized to attend the Eucharist. But uh, yeah, Justin's trying to dispel the idea that there's some kind of, uh, you know, blood ritual going on behind closed doors. So that would have been certainly one, uh, one kind of concern. Yeah, and another one related to that is, I think the phrase, I won't be able to find it, but I don't remember where it is. There's a phrase about like the donkey knocking over the candle or the dog knocking over the candle or something, as this is an accusation that Christians get together in a room and then they kick over the candle so it gets dark in there and then they just go wild, debauchery. He says, no, 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 this isn't what's happening. We're, our, we're, 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 we're getting in the room and yeah. the, the president or the leader of the group, he's, he's telling people like, you can't lie. You can't steal. <laughs> you, you have to be chaste and mm-hmm. faithful to your spouse. But sexual promiscuity is like one of Justin's central concerns. It's really fascinating over and over and over again. The Christians are accused of being promiscuous. But then Justin turns it around and says, you know, I really think you guys are projecting. Yes, I was just going to say. <laughs> yeah, like, there's so much bad stuff out there. We're the ones, like, a, a, a lot of us, like, refuse to even get married because they want to remain virgins for life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the flip side of it is generosity. So we have all things in common, but not our wives. That's the, that's the line Justin says. There's a, another letter of a similar provenance, the Epistle to Diognetus that says something very similar. You know, we have all things in common, but not, we have a common table. This is what it is, a common table, but not a common bed. That's in the letter to Diognetus. And it's, um, it's certainly getting at the, the kinds of accusations. You know, you're a secret society doing kind of crazy fundraising stuff and then engaging in goodness knows what behind closed doors. And he's saying, no, other way around. Um, we, we have our financial goods in common and we possess ourselves in a, a kind of sexual self-control. Yeah, and one of the interesting things around this point is that not only does he bring up a charge against you know those who would accuse Christianity, right? He's saying no, we, we're actually the chaste ones. Yeah, but then he also escalates it to the um, he brings the battle and uh, to use that sort of language to the gods, right? He says, look, look at the gods that you worship; they behave in such an unfitting way. Right, they're promiscuous, they're adulterous, and you and you claim that you have a problem with us for behaving in this way, but look at your gods. Yeah, just by the way, uh, this is this is a line of argument that's most exquisitely, in terms of at least of what I've read, developed in Augustine's City of God. He goes a great length, like you know, you're you're wondering why the Roman Empire is having such trouble. Don't blame the Christians. Look at Rome. Like <laughs> this is a mess. There's all sorts of problems, both gods and rulers and people and all. And he gives massive, you know, hundreds of pages of historical analysis to back up the point. Justin's giving a very similar, very brief version of that, that line of thinking. One other thing that's interesting, though, is he, he, Ryan, you mentioned projection. I think, I think Justin's both showing that there's some projection going on and it's not warranted, but he's also going to explain what the, what the basis for that projection might be. Uh, let's see if I can explain myself. Because he, he actually goes into Greek and Roman culture and sees 
echoes of what he believes the truth is that's revealed in Christ. Um, and since it's, you know, since it's new humanists, we need to show how this is connected to Lewis and Tolkien. And, you know, this is the second century version of the Inklings. Like there, there are myths out there that are glimmers of the one myth that's true. And, and that's a, a line of thought that he develops most spectacularly by going not only to the myths, but also to the philosophers and showing, I, I'm a student, I used to be a student of Plato, right? Now I'm a student of Christ. And actually Plato was a student of Christ too, in a different way. Like, uh, and that's, that's a kind of a vista that he opens up and is uh, very interesting to explore. Absolutely. Yeah. That towards the very beginning, he says, when he's, it's still kind of introducing his whole task to the emperor, he says, indeed, and this goes along with what you said about kind of wearing the philosopher's garb and using his language. It's not just contextualization, it's declaring war on philosophy and saying, I have the superior philosophy, I'm going to conquer the philosophical heights. He says, indeed, one of those of ancient times, Plato, or really Socrates in Plato's writing, once said, unless the rulers as well as the ruled are philosophers, their cities cannot truly prosper. And so he's quoting the Republic here. But what's interesting is that he's also adding in, he's putting in Plato's mouth uh, an extra phrase, because Plato said, unless the rulers are philosophers, their cities cannot truly prosper. Justin says the rulers uh, as well as the ruled everyone has to be a philosopher. So it's this yeah. democratization of philosophy, yes. which is something we talked about in Athanasius, where Athanasius kind of laughs at, at the Greek philosophers and said, oh, you could only ever get a tiny little group of people to think about despising death. The Christians have all sorts of farmers and normal people who get together on the day called Sunday to despise death and then go to their death as martyrs. Yeah. And so he's he's appealing to Plato, but then trying to trump Plato. My the editors of mine note that uh, I mean they're the ones who pointed this out. I did not piece together the Republic thing, but they note that some editors seeing this discrepancy between the quotation and what's actually in Plato, they delete the phrase as well as the ruled. Hmm. They're like going to oh this crept in somehow. Got it. Um, but my editors say no, no, no this. Let's keep it. Like, why? Why cut it out? Um, just this seems like a really interesting addition Justin's making that yeah. has some rhetorical force, and I th think it accords well, like with Athanasius. Mm -hmm. Of course, there's a few controversial things that Justin says here. The thing that's the thing that's not controversial, or it's it's just interesting, and we don't, you know, it could go any number of ways. Is there is an amazing similarity between some things that Moses says and some things that Plato says apparently for the first time, at least as far as we have recorded. So the idea that what the goal of philosophy or the goal of humanity is, is just being itself, to know being itself, ta'on in Greek. The only place earlier in recorded history, as far as I know, I don't claim to be sort of historically expert at this in this domain, but the, the idea that Justin's getting at is that if you look behind Plato, who else has talked about ta'on, the ultimate being? And the only place it's around is in Exodus 3.14 and its Greek translation in the Septuagint, uh, where God says, I am that I am. 
and the the Greek translation of that is ta'on. Oh wow! So this is this is what Justin's getting at is that there there are these prophets who came even before the philosophers, and they are talking about ultimate being. And there's a source for the kinds of insights Plato was achieving. He's very rare in a, in the insight he achieved, but he's not alone. And there's someone before him. And this is this is just really fascinating. I, I read a really interesting book. Uh, just this year, it's called The Philosophy of Hebrew Scripture by a, guy, a gentleman called Yoram Hazoni. And he does a great job showing how we often illegitimately think there's like biblical revelation over here, and then there's philosophy over there, and they're just totally different things. And what he does is he sets beside side each other a passage, I think it's from Parmenides, right. which is his example of Greek philosophy, and then a passage from the prophet Zechariah. I'm pretty sure it's Zechariah yeah. he mentions. And both of these people are talking about a vision of horses taking them up <laughs> into the sky. <laughs> and, you know, there's this Greek philosopher who's so, supposed to be sort of like really rational and everything in the common way of thinking. And he's getting, you know, carried up to the sky on horses. And then there's this prophet and he's doing the same thing. And the point is, there's a lot of overlap in the concerns of the prophets and the concerns of the philosophers and even the genre and the, the modes of discourse. And I think Justin's recognizing that, that the prophets really they're really windows into ultimate reality, not just sort of religious leaders in an ancient, uh, ancient Near Eastern people. Yeah, that, that is kind of explains, I think, one of Justin's kind of rhetorical strategies, uh, because he has this sort of argument and arguments that are similar to, you know, to the following. Like, for instance, it seems like people were suspicious of Jesus being a healer. Right, doing performing miraculous healings, but then he says, "Look, look at Asclepius. You don't have a problem with Asclepius. He's miraculously healing people. You be you believe that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. What's why? Why is it now crazy for for you know Jesus, the Son of God, to be making miraculous healings?" Yeah, you know the interesting thing is that that's that's definitely one way to. You know, one way and way to put the comparison to use, but he actually puts it slightly different use, which is he, he thinks what's going on there is that the religious or spiritual reality, which he doesn't deny in, in Greek religions, like the, the cult of Asclepius, for instance, but he does say the prophets prophesied that Christ would come to heal before Asclepius ever had that power. And he attributes that actually to, to, uh, to fallen angels, demons who are deliberately parodying or imitating what they think the fulfillment of prophecy would look like so as to confuse people. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. This is my favorite part of the whole letter. Yes. Yes, that's right. So this is, this is, uh, and it actually, it gets at another thing, which is there's a theory that he propounds that Plato learned from the prophets. Like he went to Egypt and encountered the writings of Moses. There's another version of this story in Augustine, which I believe Augustine later retracts that actually Plato actually learned from Jeremiah, the prophet, because Jeremiah spent the latter part of his life in Egypt and the dates are close. Yeah, okay. and they're just not close enough. It doesn't really yeah. work. But, but you know, it's a near miss. Yeah. I follow me. And uh, that's right. So I think if we did talk to Justin and say, look, that's not possible. There were no Hebrew writings being circulated in Greece. There was no contact between these traditions. He would just say, well, the demons read the Hebrew Bible and the Septuagint and they were involved in the spiritual goings on in Greece. And there's, there's reasons why they did the things they did. Right. So he, he, he fell back on that. It's kind of like the, 
the uh, the the demons would be doing something similar to what the magicians are doing in Exodus. Yes, where Moses has you know turns his rod into a snake, and then they do the same thing, right? And it's just the same sort of parody yeah. to to say, look, this is this this, this is our power. We can do this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then the question would be, how could that in any way lead to a positive relationship between Christianity and philosophy? It sounds like philosophy and Greek stuff is all demonic and Christianity is good, right? That's sort of his view. But the irony here is, and I think this is, again, another Inklings connection, is that there's something you can learn about Christianity or about the truth as Justin sees it by seeing the way that even imitations of it that are meant to confuse mm-hmm. contain a glimmer of truth in a in a way that's especially perceptible to certain people and certain cultures. Yep. So Justin, I think, would actually attribute this to a sort of divine providence where the the effort to confuse is actually part of the path of illumination because it splits up and fragments the truth and leaves it in more manageable pieces. Here's hmm. a healer God. Here's a, a God that speaks prophecies. Here's a God that uh, does this and does that. And then uh, later, we'll see how it all goes together. But actually, right. the the intention might have been negative, but the outcome, as Justin would see it, is actually going to be kind of compatible. Yep. And that's a, a sort of surprising outcome, I think. And the the people who uh, who write a lot on the interface between Hellenism and Christianity sometimes don't see that there's a little bit of complexity. It, it's not necessarily either Jerusalem versus Athens or total merging. It could be actually a kind of subversive merging where against against the intentions or against the sort of natural impulse of uh, certain philosophies or certain Greek religions, they do end up kind of containing shards of truth from the Christian perspective anyways. Right, right, yeah. No, and this is one of the big apologetic concerns of the Inklings since you brought them up. Yeah. Um, where and how Lewis becomes a Christian is Tolkien talking to him about, about the myths and says, look, Christianity matters because it's you love all these pagan myths christianity is the fulfillment of all of them the myths are in fact true in some way and so then yep because i think for christians who encounter some of the similarities between mythology and the bible it can be disconcerting and so i remember like in high school these two buddies inviting me over, they kind of knew that I went to youth group and they're like, you gotta, you gotta watch this YouTube video. And so it's this like hour long YouTube video about all the similarities between (laughs) mythology and Christianity and how this proves that um, the Bible is just kind of a knockoff (laughs) on this like one esoteric religion that is underneath all the other religions. (laughs) And so understandably some Christians get freaked out and be like, no, 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 those similarities aren't there. Yeah. But Justin, like the Inklings, um, is very comfortable with those similarities. Oh, yeah, you know, Perseus and the virgin birth and Hercules being like this champion going out, like in Psalm 19, Asclepius and the healing, Dionysus uh, and providing wine and then being killed violently yeah this is all this is all there's a reason it's also similar to the gospels and it's yeah these demons overheard the prophets prophesying about the coming of christ and they're like okay people are going to get saved 
we got to save them from getting saved, make sure we drag them down to hell. So we're going to confuse them so that when the savior comes, they're going to laugh at him and do what <laughs> my friends were trying, <laughs> trying to get me to do. Oh, this is just some knockoff, stupid religion. Um, and <laughs> yeah, it's, it's pernicious. The subversion of that is that it provides almost a tip as to how people like Justin can 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 show the value of what they're saying to various cultures. So which which fragment of truth are you already in possession of? Let me start there. <laughs> yeah. Right. And then it actually becomes a path when it was meant to be a barrier. In his sort of cosmology, he's seeing that this was meant to be a barrier that's that's subverted. Right. Right. I think there's well, I don't know. So my sense from reading Justin is that Yes, both philosophy and poetry, to use poetry as kind of this catch-all for kind of myth and epic and religious religious stories, pagan religious stories. Both philosophy and poetry in the Greek world kind of get their fulfillment in Christianity, but they're not the same because philosophy doesn't come from demons in the same way that poetry does. The stories of Hercules and Dionysus and Bellerophon and Pegasus, etc., are the inventions of demons. And when people go and worship the gods, they're worshiping demons. On the other hand, like Plato learned this stuff from the prophets. Plato is far from being a demon or a vessel of demons. Plato's actually a Christian because the Logos, Jesus, Christ, the son of the father is the first firstborn of all creation. And you have some people before the incarnation, before the son of God takes on human form. Some people are living by reason, like the philosophers, which means they're living by the logos. So they're living with Christ before Jesus of Nazareth, historically speaking, which means he says Socrates and Heraclitus are therefore Christians. And so in his apologetic he says, yeah, these Socrates, Heraclitus, they're Christians. And then uh, he says, and they were teaching the same message that the, the barbaroi, the barbarians, is what he calls the Hebrew prophets. They're saying the same message. Um, so it's not demonic in the same way. Does he, does he say that Heraclit Heraclitus and so on are, are Christians? Or does he say that he and they are, have a common problem with myth or they're both working to deconstruct myth? So he definitely says Socrates is like Christ in that he was killed. There's a, there's a comparison between the two. Yeah. But then in chapter, paragraph 46, he says, Justin says, we were taught and we mentioned before that Christ is the firstborn of God, being the Logos in which the whole race of human beings shared. And those who lived with Logos are Christians, even if they were called atheists such as among the Greeks, Socrates and Heraclitus, and those similar to them, and among the barbarians, Abraham and Ananias and Azarias and Messiah and Elijah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, I mean, there it is. My, I mean, it kind of depends also on your version and your translation. My editors make it pretty clear that this is a very problematic manuscript. It's coming over a millennium after Justin, yeah. the manuscript that comes down to us. There's lots of missing stuff and things that are unclear don't make sense. And so every editor has to make lots of emendations in order just to make the thing make sense. 
so I don't know what your version, if your version is as clear as that. No, it is, at yeah. least my editors seem to think that Justin is saying Socrates, Heraclitus, and people like that, even if they're called atheists, are Christians. Yeah, the the version of this analysis that Augustine gives is that someone like Plato would have been a Christian had he had he known, had he lived at a later date or been in a different situation. I wonder how strong, yeah, anyways, it'd be interesting to kind of get into the weeds to compare the two, but certainly, certainly you're right. There's the, uh, the reason that Platonism is the sort of gateway drug to Christianity for Justin is that it prepares him for the immaterial, the appreciation of immaterial reality that is beyond the, the, the account of the world that the myths give. And yeah, that's what, as Augustine would later say, the books of the Platonists taught me that in the beginning was the Logos. And then the, the books of the apostles taught me that the Logos became flesh and dwelt among us. So there was a sort of penultimate step and Platonism filled that role. Yeah. This, this brings up one other thing about the relationship between philosophy and Christianity. There's the philosophy versus Christianity, like where they contradict and yeah. then where they just address different issues. But there's also a sense where they, someone like Justin sees the Hebrew prophets as going farther, like, you know, higher up and, and deeper in or further in and deeper or whatever it is Lewis says, I just butchered that. <laughs> yeah, um, going farther along the same path. So uh, someone like Plato or Socrates or Aristotle will be able to appreciate, you know, the form of the good or ultimate reality or being itself, something like that, but always from an outside perspective. Whereas what the prophets give us is an actual internal perspective in ultimate reality. And this is where Justin's gonna give us the groundwork for the doctrine of the Trinity. Should be noted, Justin is probably not the most successful formulator of the doctrine of the Trinity. Did you detect as you were reading certain elements where Jesus seems to be, or the, the word seems to be like the second in command as opposed to the, the you know, God? Yes. That yes. type of thing, you know, Justin's very early in, in the church's efforts to work this stuff out. Yeah. Even just one generation later, Irenaeus of Lyon in France will give a more sort of worked out version that, that is a little bit post-Nicene Christians would recognize more, more comfortably. Yeah. But uh, at any rate, what, what Justin gives us is the groundwork for the doctrine that Nicaea would formulate in the exegetical patterns that he sees in scripture, because he doesn't just see the prophets, as I said, as religious leaders kind of from an ancient time trying to keep Israel together. He sees them as you know, people with special access into higher realms of reality than most people. And the best description of this is in a book, a really good book called The Birth of the Trinity by Matthew Bates. And I, I pulled it up here so I could, I could just read a, a sentence or two oh, if yeah, that's okay. And he says this, the, early, the earliest Christians were convinced that a few special humans in the past had obtained an otherworldly glimpse into divine affairs. These were the ancient Hebrew prophets. These prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, David, and others, were able to climb through a divinely ordained tear between heaven and earth in order to overhear and report celestial conversations. These prophetic visitors could listen as God the Father spoke with the Son, uh, the preexistent Son, as the father, for instance, lovingly described the way he was preparing a body for him, or the prophets themselves actually participated in the conversations as actors, taking on either the person of the son and then the person of the father, uh, and, and so on. And that's just a little bit of a, a, a quote from 
an early page in that book. Oh, that's great. And this is this is um, something that Justin does a, a great job of where he'll, he'll go to a text and not only ask, what is the prophet talking about here? But he'll ask the question, on whose behalf is the prophet talking? And there's moments where the prophet is speaking on behalf of the father. And in these cases, the prophet's often talking about what God's going to do in the world or certain commitments God's making about sending his son to be a messiah. And then there's other moments where the prophet's talking on behalf of the logos. Uh, and there's yet other moments where the prophet's talking on behalf of the people. And uh, in those sort of three patterns, those are sort of the early uh, sort of groundwork of what would eventually be formulated as, as the doctrine of the Trinity, which was specifically meant to account for these exegetical patterns. It wasn't meant to be a sort of philosophical addition or something on top of scripture. It was meant to be uh, gathering up scripture into a, a coherent pattern. Oh, interesting. Would, would someone trying to explain this or justify this turn to the gospels as and Jesus's own exegesis of the Old Testament as kind of confirmation where Jesus talks about, he's commenting on David saying, the Lord said to my Lord, put the right footstool. That's right. Earth as my footstool. And, so, and Jesus says, well, how could, how could David be saying this? Yeah, the, the, the reason Psalm 110 is so, so important in the New Testament is that it's the most obvious conversation between two divine persons in the Old Testament. There's, there are many other examples. Uh, Hebrews 1 is a very interesting example in the New Testament of a place where the New Testament author attributes to one person of the Trinity uh, a text in Psalm 102 that if you just read Psalm 102 on its own, seems to be just a statement about God in general. But if you look at it again uh -huh. closely, both in the original Hebrew and the, the, the text as it stands in the Old Testament and Hebrew, Hebrews 1, you start to glimpse that the, the, there's this sort of conversation happening where actually two people are talking back and forth uh, as opposed to humans praising God. It's actually one divine person praising another. And that's the, the type oh, of pattern wow. that uh, Justin's picking up on here. Wow. Oh, that's great. One thing that I really liked was, so he has this kind of fantastic, and I don't, I don't mean to be condescending. It's really interesting. This kind of fantastic story about the demons overhearing the prophets. But he then in the next paragraph says, you know, there's all these things, the virgin birth, the ascension, dying violently, the blood, the wine, all, all the stuff that the demons picked up on and made the poets put out there in the world. But the cross, the demons did not understand or predict. That's the thing that is just totally missed by them. But then curiously, he says, but one way you do see kind of prefiguration, or not even prefigurations, but kind of evidence of the cross. And this is very strange to me. I wonder how, <laughs> obviously Antoninus Pius, if he ever read this apology, was not convinced in the long run. But this part seems maybe the least convincing, but he compares Roman military equipment hmm. and, and also ship building technology to the cross says like when you carry your banners around the banner like the metal is a cross and the like the mast of the ship with the cross beams this is a cross yes this is all i, I this is kind of funny I, yes. I don't know i didn't really buy it yeah i mean this is this is probably the part of early early church fathers that for us today and i and you're probably right for people like antoninus 
it was probably the same problem. It's just the most difficult to interpret. And another one is Irenaeus saying that the reason that there are four gospels is that there are four compass points. It just is like, whoa, you know, where'd that come from? <laughs> yeah, it seems that there's, there's a, like the imaginative world that they inhabit is vastly different from mm-hmm. our own. And they just see meaning in everything. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in Irenaeus' case, he sees it from the tabernacle. Um, because the, the, or the, or the temple, uh, if you look up the word for in the old Testament, the, where the most four cornered things, it's always these square objects in the tabernacle and temple and, um, sorry to kind of digress, but you know, uh, there's a, there's a scholar who actually looked into this and he has a really good case that what Irenaeus is claiming about the gospels is that they are the place where God dwells, uh, with his people now. And he uses specific temple kind of imagery to draw us connection. And so it would fit that there are four points to the temple, four points to the world of which the temple was meant to be a microcosm and then four gospels. So he actually has a kind of, he can explain himself, even if it's not gonna be convincing to someone who doesn't buy into the symbolism. I don't know what the account of the sort of crosswise construction of the world that, that Justin sees is, but I believe he would give a similar explanation and have similar kinds of uh, data to account right. for. Right, right, yeah, 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 well, we can we can sneer, I guess, but Justin Justin and Irenaeus yes. are up there laughing at us, being like, "You you poor you That's poor right. you poor people who are so blind can't see anything." Yeah. Do you think it would be maybe equivalent to um, the kind of national, like the way that we maybe see an eagle and can't help but behold the prowess of in the country where I live, the the United States, you know, just the the glory of the glory of a nation able to kind of spread its wings and go wherever it wants, you know, it's, it's difficult to avoid some kind of symbolic association with such things. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Um, but, uh, but yes, I, I, I honestly couldn't, couldn't be the person to provide the, the, the inner explanation for Justin's symbolism there. Yeah. One other, just one other thing I, I think that people might be interested to know is that the, the kind of thinking that Justin represents here and the kind of leadership that he represents is, I think, a kind of heroic and very generous thinking and, and leadership. We've we had a lot of conversation that I think might make sense to someone who agrees with the Bible and agrees with Justin. But I, I do think it'd be good to just reflect on how Justin's not trying to say, if you don't agree with me, then I'm not going to do, I'm not going to, there's no, I have no interest in you or in your society or your culture or anything like that. It's, it's kind of the opposite. And I use that phrase of sort of declaring war earlier. I think it could be the, it would be wrong to leave a sense that Justin is on a sort of crusade or um, some, he's trying to do violence to his interlocutors. I think what he gives us is the sort of statesmanship that we find as a real alternative to the statesmanship practiced by the Caesars of domination, of I'm not gonna bother persuading you, I'm just gonna set the policy and I'll leave some wiggle room to keep you content out in the provinces, but send your tax money. (laughs) And the kind of leadership that Justin and other great figures like him later in essentially the, the civilization that Christianity helped to shape, it really is a noble thing to lead by the word, to lead by personal conviction and persuasion, uh, not yielding the points, but seeing in others glimmers of one's own conviction 
that could be the seeds of a persuasive conversation rather than a, a kind of dominating conversation. And him donning the philosopher's cloak is really him saying, I'm going to lead like Socrates. I'm going to lead like Plato. I'm going to lead like Jesus. I'm going to lead like these people who, who have ambitions to show the whole world the truth, but are a very clear alternative to the people who killed Plato and the people who killed Jesus and the people who killed Justin. So I think that's maybe something to really take away as a, a noble element in, in what he's doing. Yeah, that's a, that's a really great observation. He's not, yeah, he really is not simply asserting, right? I'm right. You're wrong. You're going to burn in hellfire. Uh, yeah. So stop killing us. <laughs> but he really is modeling the use of reason and search for truth and the, you know, opening up for the possibility of rational discourse about ultimate things. And um, I mean, this might, you know, might be pushing too far, but in the public square. Yeah. Like this is, this is a, this is a public conversation that has legal ramifications. At least that's, that's uh, Justin Martyr's desire. Yeah. And that's kind of easy to be cynical and to be like, yeah, nobody is ever convinced by, by arguments. We can, we can just kind of drop that and turn everything into a kind of like a power, power plays. But yeah, maybe there's a, there's a better path. I do think there's a reason that we are attracted to the apologists in the sense that it is difficult to really dislike someone who's speaking for a minority in a, in a hostile environment, trying to, trying to express why their people should be treated well. I mean, he's speaking on behalf of a whole people here. Um, and, uh, that's maybe something that we can, we can kind of learn from no matter, no matter what we're uh, advocating for is that there is a, a rhetorical and kind of personal nobility to the person who's speaking. Maybe they're not in the situation Justin's in, but they're willing to speak in that mode of, even if I had nothing to offer you, and even if you had every reason in the world to mistreat me, let me explain uh, from my perspective what things look like. Yeah. And on the one hand, it's a bit of a rhetorical power play because he's, I'm going to set myself up on the side of Socrates, who you guys yeah. love. I know you guys do. You guys call yourselves philosophers. Yeah. You speaking to the Roman emperors. Uh, and he has good reason to identify as the Socrates character because he's in the minority. He is persecuted. And these guys are the powerful ones in charge of the city doing the persecuting. So on the one hand, it's kind of a rhetorical power play. And so it's it's shrewd. But on the other hand, it's not overly shrewd because it's he's not casting his interlocutors in terms they don't understand it's in terms they appreciate it's in terms that would be moving to them because socrates is their man so to speak um he's not necessarily justin's man in quite the same way but justin wants to adopt him which is really interesting and I, I actually almost suppress it a little differently that Justin's saying, I, I have been in your position with your desires and I found my own desires met in this way, my own yeah. ambitions. And then this is a religion or a philosophy or a, a, a viewpoint that has nourished and nurtured a way of life of a people who across all sorts of cultures and all sorts of differences, for one, they're very brave, like we were mentioning earlier, you know, they're, they're actually attaining philosophical courage in the face of death. But you know they're also caring for children. There's a, a moving statement about the care for the, the exposed infants that they're adopting, and so on. Uh, we're caring for our own poor and also the poor of others. 
And I mean, these are things that we take for granted that there's hospitals that anyone can go to. That wasn't the case in their day. You couldn't just find medical care no matter who you are or what your situation is. And even today, it's hard to find medical care that you can afford, but emergency medical care will be provided, at least where I live, kind of no matter who you are, you'll get some kind of help. Right. So that's a, that's a world that Justin's hoping people will glimpse. Um, this is a world where a new way of life is possible. So oh yeah, sort of nobility of it, I think is it would be it would be a, a pity to miss that aspect of what he's commending. Yeah, and in his discussion of the practices of the early church, and we can talk a little bit more about this with the little time we have left. He talks about baptism, corporate prayer, Eucharist, preaching, gathering together on Sundays, and the collection for orphans, widows, the sick, prisoners, um, foreigners. And then he says, and I really love this line, he's talking about the president, the guy presiding over the, the gathering. And he is the protector of all in general who are in need. Like, man, that's a really powerful statement of the kind of statesmanship, to use the word uh, you used, Calvin. Mm-hmm. Of, yeah, what if, what if church leaders saw themselves as the protector of all in general who are in need? Uh, it's not a <laughs> not a usual formulation, but I really like it. Just by the way, and this would be a, another topic, but the whole topic of of pastoral ministry and Christian leadership in the early church is a fascinating one, and a lot of different kinds of parallels between the Greco Roman world and the the Christian world. Ambrose, for instance, wrote a book with the same title as a book by Cicero, uh, De Officiis, on on offices, ah. and he was he was writing a treatise on on Christian leadership as as uh, a sort of distinctive, although overlapping topic with um, public leadership in Rome. So that you're right. I think, I think there's a glimmer here of some things that will be more and more apparent as the centuries go by, mm. that the ambition that Justin's harboring is to actually found a new city, a new society, a new people with a different way of life, a different way of relating to each other. And uh, I, I think it's a profoundly attractive one, especially in, the, in terms of what he was setting it up against uh he he certainly had a uh, something to give something to offer this is i'm sure totally anachronistic and a big stretch but this line about the president being the protector of all in general who are in need puts me in mind of like the christian knight that you see in medieval literature that you just get these powerful dudes with weapons on horses just ranging around looking for people in need to fight on their behalf mm-hmm. yep Maybe, maybe another image, since I mentioned Ambrose, Ambrose famously, you know, stared down the emperor for his brutality in Thessalonica. He had uh, a whole bunch of innocent people violently mistreated. And uh, Ambrose wouldn't, uh, wouldn't permit him to attend church, basically, until he repented. And he kind of humiliated him, you know, out in the snow. Ambrose like, no, you must repent before you can be restored. Given the gravity of the sin, I mean, thousands of people were killed. It was a terrible sin. You know, maybe that's a that's a direction Justin's moving in. And um, you know, in a very simple way, it's actually good for someone to be able to rebuke the emperor for doing all sorts of terrible things, right? So that's a good direction to have people like the Christian knight or the Christian statesman like Ambrose. You know, that's at least in a very simple way a positive development. Yeah. By the way, one, one uh, resource people should know about to kind of navigate this stuff is there's a, a famous book by Robert Wilkin, Christians as the Romans saw them. And that's a, you know, a historical study of this, of this literature, the apologist literature, a kind of mirror reading in a way, you know, what, what, must the, what must the Romans have thought about the Christians given what the Christians needed to, needed to say back? 
and it gives a real insight into uh, what what that what that relationship and what the possibilities for it were, and may, maybe illuminating and interesting for many. I have just kind of one final thing that would change the topic to close on. Any other things about the early church life or anything else we've talked about? No, I also have a a final thought. So, okay, okay, I'll let you have the final. The penultimate. Thought. I'll have the penultimate thought. One thing, if you haven't spent a lot of time, and this is the position I'm in, admittedly, a lot of time reading Christian documents from immediately after the apostolic age, so like early church fathers, and if you haven't spent a lot of time reading that stuff, which I have not, but you spend a lot of time reading the Bible, you can get this sense that Christian literature is kind of this, like the Christian literature is just this like spot like the Bible's written and there's all this other stuff happening out there. And then you just have to kind of fast forward a few hundred years and then Christianity kind of appears in a big way on the world stage. But as, as we've seen, like Justin is talking about the philosophers and the pagan poets. He's addressing Caesar. Um, you have Roman officials writing back and forth to each other about Christianity. This stuff is live. And the Bible's not just this one kind of anomalous document or set of documents. And this was really driven home just by the amount of citations that Justin includes from the Gospels. So if you listen to a kind of, you know, crackerjack Bible skeptic who will say, oh, the Bible is just, you know, over the course of hundreds of years, just people trying to make up this religion. They just wrote it all. But I mean, here you have Justin in the second century reproducing quotes from the Gospels. Uh, sometimes he modifies them, which is really interesting. Like he kind of sort of misquotes Jesus on one point about when Jesus says that, oh, you, you, you love those who love you. Well, What's so great about that? Even even sinners do that. Uh, Justin quotes Jesus, but then he says, not even sinners do that. Even male prostitutes do that. Mm. Um, this is Justin Justin's little addition. But, and there's stuff where it seems pretty clear that Justin has access to the gospel of John. And so John is kind of, I'm not a huge expert on text criticism and historical criticism, but John's usually thought to be a later gospel and but here in the second century justin seems to be familiar with the nicodemus story about being born again he goes he talks a lot about that relative mm -hmm. to baptism and reproduces some of nicodemus's objections so he clearly the like the bible is there he has it uh he's reading it he can quote it, it, it i don't really have a point just that's something that struck me and do you notice one significant thing? He does not ever quote the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Jesus' wife. None of the Nag Hammadi literature, as it's known today, is ever mentioned. And this is, this is significant because the impression is often given by the most extreme skeptics about the history of the Bible and by those who just kind of, that's the, that's the take that they've yeah. heard, is that there was just massive confusion. Nobody, nobody really knows what the Bible was until like, the late third century, you know, the consensus, the sort of bell curve was shifting towards the, the documents we now recognize. There's a grain of truth. There's some places didn't accept revelation. There's other places, you know, there's, there is a little bit of fuzziness to it, but there's an awful lot less fuzziness than 
um, for instance, Bart Ehrman would like us to think that. <laughs> that's what I was thinking. Of. Yes. I mean, Bart Ehrman's central argument is that um, the the you know the, we actually just don't even know what the Bible is until a couple centuries later. Like it's 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 just up for debate completely. And shockingly, J Justin seems to know what it is in one exactly. <laughs> and he doesn't even have to deal with the problem. You know, it just doesn't come up. So it's just a little historical data point that's very significant. And just to yeah. bear in mind, he's so early that he probably overlapped his life with John. Ah. Uh, Irenaeus is a little younger than than Justin. And Irenaeus, in his Against Heresies, talks about his teacher Polycarp relating stories of sitting at John's feet as an aged apostle in Bible study, you know? So these are these are very direct living links. Uh, this is not a this is not a vague general historical connection. This is a very specific. So one. so Irenaeus overlaps with Polycarp, who overlaps with John. Yes. And so is Justin in the generation of Polycarp? Then he's kind of he's a little he's a little older than Irenaeus. So I okay. I think he might be twenty or thirty years older than Irenaeus. So he's probably he would have been a he also would have been younger than Polycarp, but okay. but not no but you know really close a, a little closer in age. Yeah, I, I just mean it's like if if someone knew if a major event had happened in your grandparents' lifetime, like World War II or something, and your your grandfather talked about it, and you you just talked about it, there's a kind of historical just simplicity to what's going on right. there that does not reflect the complexity of what uh, what some of the kind of extreme skeptics about the canon uh, talk about. So. Yeah, there's lots of lots of interesting things that way about the the role that people like Justin have in transmitting to us the state of affairs, right? Yeah. So get refunds on your Bart Ehrman books and yes, Da Vinci Code tickets and all that stuff. Maybe the New Humanist will one day do an episode on on one of Bart Ehrman's books. <laughs> uh, it'd be very. It's very interesting. What what Bart Ehrman's very uh, excellent at is his technical scholarship skills are excellent. Uh, his knowledge of the primary literature and his uh, his linguistic and text critical ability is outstanding, and he does have a lot of interesting things to talk about. It's just he takes some very extreme and I I think foundationally flawed uh, interpretations of the data. Interesting, Jonathan. Ultimate thought. My ultimate thought is you know that I think that often we have this prejudice against people that have lived before our time. You know, we think that we're, we are the really sophisticated generation. We look at the past and it's like, ah, they didn't even have toilets. And what can they have to offer us? And, and then especially, I think, if religious people of the past, oh my goodness, superstition out of the wazoo, et cetera. But what's interesting is that I don't think that the average person is, in a sense, qualified to even read Justin Martyr's first apology. <laughs> now, that, that's, that's the, the more intense way of putting it. What I mean by that is, if you read him, like he really knows his classical learning, right? He, it's just chock full of myth, chock full of philosophy. And the average person reading is like, well, who's Asclepius, right? Who are these guys that if you... You know, if you're really so, on the one hand, we should we should acknowledge like these some of these folks were really learned, yep. right? They're not just you know ignoramuses. And then this, I think, should motivate us to to get more learned ourselves. And if you really want to get all of the goodies from Justin Martyr, I think you really need to study like ancient philosophy and ancient mythology. 
And, and it's not that you can't appreciate. I think that it, it can be appreciated on different levels. Like you can read it without being super familiar with this stuff and still learn a lot from it. You'll be kind of lost at, with some of the references. But a second read after studying some ancient philosophy and some ancient mythology is going to really enrich your understanding of, of this text. Undoubtedly. I would just add, and of the Bible, same thing. He's really expert in scripture. And yeah, that's crucial to grasping his argument. A lot of people are very dismissive of his expertise in scripture because he's not, he's not critical in his approach to the Old Testament, that so on, that sort of thing. But if we, if we admire his approach mm -hmm. to scripture, we'd go a long way towards grasping what he's up to. Yeah, that's well said. Yeah, and I would just say that that kind of knowledge of the Bible and philosophy and pagan poetry is something you can get from footnotes, you know, to the text as you go along, it'll clarify like, okay, Dionysus, you know, God associated with wine and mystery religions. But when you've read the stuff that Dionysus is in, you know the stories, then when you come back to Justin or anything like it, it comes alive in a way that footnotes will never make something come alive. And then you really feel the force of his illusions. You feel the force of the argument. And it just livens it up. I, and I know this just because it's happened so many times to me. I read something. It's kind of like, oh, okay, I guess that's who Agamemnon is. And then you spend mm -hmm. some time reading about <laughs> Agamemnon. And then Agamemnon right. gets referenced. And you're like, oh, yeah, I know what's going on. Yeah, it's kind of like, kind of like reading Dante's Inferno, like you read yeah. it in high school. Yeah. Right. And then you graduate from college and spend a few years and you're, you continue to read. And then you go back and you read Dante's Inferno again and you realize how much Dante has learned. <laughs> He's gotten so smart. Um, like your dad. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. Right. Yes. That, exactly. You know, can, I, can I just share a, a little anecdote from my early days as an ALI student? Please. We were, we were reading uh, Daedalus and Icarus in one of our one of our classes back in the day when we were a, when we were a, a little troop behind teacher Jonathan and I actually had never read this stuff in any language before I just it was never part of my education so I was I was reading the actual story I'd heard of it but never read it and I remember sitting at the breakfast table with my daughter who was at that time maybe two and a half or three maybe three and a half I just I can't remember but she was little and I told her the Daedalus and Icarus story and she wept I remember very vividly wow. that she she it gripped her in a way that it actually gripped me more because I saw what it did to her. And I can only think of someone coming to someone like Justin, who's been through that path mm -hmm. of loving Asclepius's healing, and then loving Socrates' critique of the of the myths, and seeing ultimate reality just over the horizon, and then hearing through the prophets what ultimate reality says inside, and then as he says, his heart burning with desire and then, you know, falling into the, the new way of life that issued from that. That's the, the kind of mode that all of this occurred in for him. And to me, the story of Dido and Icarus and my daughter, that's a little glimpse of what that must have been like for him and for many others. Uh, and as we mentioned, Lewis, his conversion was something similar. And, you know, who knows for, for anybody who, who may be just looking for ultimate reality wherever it wherever it can be glimpsed doesn't get better than that guys thanks for listening this is the new humanists rate review share subscribe talk to you next time